0: 2006 October 27. Today is lecture 26 on telescopes, which will begin in just a moment. We are now past the halfway point on this class, which is kind of appropriate that we're going to make this sudden transition from talking about a lot of physics stuff, talking about astronomy again. And in fact, on Monday we'll be starting in on the solar system, where we'll we start talking about the Earth and Moon system in the lead up to next Friday's quiz number three. So we've finally gotten through all this background material, and we're finally to get to the actual meat of this course, which is talking about the solar system and the planets. Um, Today, however, is a little bit of a different lecture in that I want to talk about telescopes. We've talked a lot about light, we've talked matter and spectroscopy, and I showed you my little toy spectrograph, but what are the actual tools that astronomers use? We've only seen one picture of a telescope so far in this class, and that's Galileo's telescope. Where has that technology gone on? A lot of what we're going to talk about over the next few weeks is going to be based on observations made with various kinds of telescopes, whether they're telescopes here on the Earth or telescopes I've attached in some way to a spacecraft, either a robotic spacecraft sent to a planet out in the solar system or an orbiting giant telescope like the Hubble Space Telescope. So today's lecture is going to be on telescopes. And one of the things we're going to slip into this a little bit is actually a discussion of Ohio State's telescopes. You may not know this, but Ohio State is actually one of the more richly endowed astronomical observations. Not rich in money, but we have a tremendous number of observing resources. So I want you to get an idea of what your telescopes are like. We're going to start out by talking basically about the different types of telescopes. There are two fundamental types. Those that use lenses, or so-called refracting telescopes. The eye is an example of a refracting telescope and reflecting telescopes that use giant mirrors as light collectors. We'll talk a little bit about the figures of merit. What is it that makes a telescope important? It's not its magnifying power. It turns out it's its collecting area. We'll say a bit about that here in just a second. We'll say something about where we put telescopes. It's sort of not a good idea to put a telescope in central Ohio, as the weather today implies. How do we choose observatory sites on the Earth and where do we go? And the answer is some really cool places. And then we'll talk a little bit about other types of telescopes, like radio telescopes and telescopes in space, and I'll wind up the lecture with a discussion, of course, of Ohio State's telescopes and the many operations we get into. I'm an observational astronomer, but I'm also an instrument builder. I build instruments, electronic instruments, that go behind large telescopes, or large and small telescopes, in fact. I've built quite a number of instruments over the years, I'm very proud of them. That's why the, the Mark IV there I'm only half joking, that is a serious instrument, although I'll show you the big 2,700 kilo steel version of that that's coming together in our shops a little bit later. The simplest version of a telescope is the type we carry with us. We each have a pair of these little telescopes together, and they're little refracting telescopes. It has a little collecting area, which is basically the diameter of the opening of the pupil, which under very, very dark conditions can be almost a centimeter. It's about eight, you know, yeah, about, about a centimeter for some people, depending on the size of your eye. Just inside the eye is a lens. It's basically made of a clear material. There's a musculature there, which can actually sh- alter the shape of the lens to focus it. And light rays coming from an object, oh, say this traditional optics bright, re- bright arrow, Converging through the lens, the lens acts to concentrate the light and then re-image that arrow onto the back of the retina. Now, it may not seem this way, but in fact, your eye forms an upside-down picture. But your brain inside of it turns that picture right-side up. It has some notion of gravity. They've actually done this really nifty trick where they've given people glasses with an optic in front of them that turns the world upside down. And the first time is they spend their time stumbling around, but after a while, the brain gets used to it. How to, brain has got a tremendous image processor hiding behind the optic nerve here, which you can do an awful lot with. This is a marvelous instrument. Okay, First of all, it works in parallel. We, we Most of us come with two of them. They can work with the image processing system in our, in our head to make simple stereo vision, which is good out to a few hundred meters. So if you need to make that long pass, you can do it. Okay, There's my weekly sports reference. Um, It also um, has a very nice response in the visible part of the spectrum. Well, duh, yeah, because it's called the visible. Actually, it has a very nice response in a part of the electromagnetic spectrum where most of the sunlight comes down to the ground through the Earth's atmosphere, which is mostly opaque to most of the electromagnetic spectrum. In fact, our visual field roughly peaks out in the green level, it has um, a variable aperture, so it can stand being working in very bright conditions or very dark conditions, and it's connected up to a very sophisticated image processing computer. And finally, it can be mass-produced with unskilled labor. <sighs> gets that joke? Okay. The figure of merit of any telescope is what we call light-gathering power. Now, the eye has a limited light-gathering power because it has a very small aperture. The way you measure the light gathering power is simply the total collecting area of the telescope. And it works in a very simple way. The bigger the total area, the more light you can collect. On a nice rainy morning like this, a simple analogy will do. Imagine that your goal is not to collect photons, but you're in a dry desert area, and it only rains twice a year. And so you want to collect as many raindrops as you possibly can. Well you're not going to do very good by sticking a coffee cup outside because you've only got a limited amount of area that the raindrops can fall into. But if you can stretch a gigantic tent out and then funnel it down into your coffee cup you're going to collect a lot of water really quick. Telescopes work exactly the same way. What a big telescope does for you first and foremost is it gives you a gigantic light bucket. Then you shape that telescope in a special way to bring all that light down into a small place. And that's the whole trick. What a telescope is, is a bunch of glass, a bunch of steel, maybe some aluminum and stuff like that, whose whole purpose in life is to collect photons and bring them to a tight, tiny focus. The bigger the area, the more you get. So that tells us that how we often talk about telescopes in terms of collecting area is we speak in terms of their diameter. How big across is the lens or the mirror that's doing the primary collecting? So what we say is the light-gathering power is going to increase as the area gets bigger, which means the light-gathering power increases as the square of the aperture. So if I go from a one-centimeter telescope, like in the human eye under dark conditions, and I go up to a one-meter telescope made of glass, I've gone up a factor of 100 in diameter or a factor of 10,000 in collecting area. Now that doesn't mean I have 10,000 magnification. I haven't said anything about magnification yet. That's completely a second order effect. The primary effect is if I've got 10,000 square centimeters to collect photons with, that's just a whole lot more area than one square centimeter. And that's where the gain comes from. Magnification is secondary. That's simply how I contrive the optics to form an image. So the primary figure of merit is the light gathering power. This is one of those few cases in life where the more light-gathering power you can get, the bigger the optic it is, the better it is for most of of the applications. Normally, you can get away with things scaling very appropriately, but telescopes, the bigger they are, the better they are. Refracting telescopes... This is the first type of telescope design that was built. This is the one that Hans Lipperhey probably built in 1608, and certainly is the design that Galileo converged on very quickly in 1609 to develop the first astronomical telescope, which of course led to the Sidereus Nuncius in 1610, 1611. What it does is it uses as its collecting area a large curved piece of glass called a lens. It gets its name because it looks like a little lentil bean. Light passing through the lens because light is bent by passing through a refractive medium like water or glass, is the shape is contrived so that all the rays which are coming in parallel and I've shown them as red parallel rays here, come to a single focal point somewhere behind the lens. You then spread it out and pass it through a second lens and bring it to a focus outside the tube. The focus may be where you put your eye, at which point this secondary lens down here is often called the eyepiece. What it really does is it serves to match the telescope in your eye to the big telescope in the lens. You can make a crude telescope by taking a lens and holding it out in the distance and kind of moving it around until you can kind of get your eye up against it, but that's really inconvenient to use. It's better to put two lenses in a rigid tube And then you only have to move your eye a little tiny bit behind the second lens rather than a huge amount behind the big primary lens to do this. You you can do it, but it's just much better to do it with a rigid tube. So this is a classic refracting telescope. You use a big lens. The primary or so-called objective lens is the one in front. And its diameter is what sets the collecting area of a refracting telescope. Now, this was the most common design of telescope that was built since the time of Galileo. In fact, it was the most common telescope used for astronomical research up to the beginning of the 20th century. There turns out there's a size limit. You can make a lens only so big before after a while the technology gets in your way. In this case, the largest lenses people have ever been able to make are about 40 inches across, about 1 meter. Now, that's huge. That's a really big lens. These things, however, had two problems. Number one is that they they have to be huge, which means they're going to weigh a whole bunch. The second is that you have to have perfectly clear glass, and it's really hard to make big pieces of perfectly clear glass. So they ran into two technological problems. Even if they could make a 48 inch diameter or 6 foot diameter um, lens, and people thought about how to do that. Even if you could make it clear, it would be so heavy, it would sag under its own weight. But it's the shape of the lens that brings it to a tight focus. So the very weight of the lens would sag so much, it would totally degrade its usefulness as a lens. Imagine taking, for those of you unfortunate people like me who wear eyeglasses, imagine if someone took your your glasses and smooshed them a bit. They wouldn't work anymore. A lens has to be exactly the right shape. So these things got too big for their own weight, and they just sag. The other problem was they were so massive you needed these extremely long steel tubes. And any of you have got any engineering background? know it's really hard to make something long and thin that doesn't flex. And so the problem was you, could, if you, if you even if you could build such a lens and hold it together, you would have to build a gigantic steel tube, and after a while you're just past the stiffness limits of steel, and the thing's just going to sag like a big old steel noodle. The other problem is, is that lenses have to be clear, right? So if you're going to support them, you've got to support them around the edge. So you get absolutely no gain from tricky mechanical supports from the back, because if you support them from the back, you can't see through the lens. So all these technological advantages pretty much topped out at 40 inches. And there is the largest refracting telescope ever built. It was built by the University of Chicago. It lives up in uh, Williams Bay, Wisconsin. They had to get out of Chicago to have decent seeing. It has a 40-inch Lens up at the front. This is called the Yerkes Observatory. If any of you get up into Wisconsin, it's supposed to be really pretty to go see this. I've never been up yet. I have in-laws up in Wisconsin. We've never gotten over to Green Bay, to Williams Bay, not Green Bay, Williams Bay, not the football. Um, I've seen. I've worked with its partner, though. Its second, the second largest ever built, was the 36-inch diameter refractor at Lick Observatory. We didn't use it for research anymore, but we did use it uh, for public nights there at the observatory when I was a graduate student. It's really cool to look through a giant refracting telescope. The Reflecting Telescope. Now here's a a little change from your notes. I discovered something, I learned something last night. I was looking up a so-called Gregorian design, and I realized that for years I've been teaching something wrong. Isaac Newton did not invent the Reflecting Telescope. The first Reflecting Telescope was actually invented by a man named James Gregory. More than f- almost 40 years before Newton built his reflecting telescope. So there's something new. But we'll call it a joint invention by James Gregory, because Gregory only made a design. Newton built one of the first practical refl- reflecting telescopes. The Gregorian design was very impractical and very hard to build. What a reflecting telescope does is it addresses this question of how you gather light and bring it to a focus. And instead of using lenses, you use mirrors. So you use a curved mirror to gather and focus light, kind of like those curved shaving mirrors you see in bathrooms. What you do is you start with a large primary mirror, which is curved in such a way that it can bring the light to a focus. So the light comes in, bounces off the mirror, and all the rays come to a tight focus, which because it's off the primary mirror is called the prime focus. This has a number of advantages, okay? If you have a gigantic mirror, you can support it from the back because it only has to be reflective. Furthermore, it doesn't even have to be clear, it just has to have a shiny surface. So the very first reflecting telescopes didn't use glass, they used a chunk of metal which was polished on the front surface and then supported from the back. Now, the problem with the prime foot, with the, this is a very simple in principle. You can put a spherical shape or a parabolic shape on the primary the problem is, if you want to look through this telescope, you've got to put your head right here. Notice that your head is blocking the telescope view. That sucks. you go all this trouble to build this gigantic primary mirror, and then you stick your head in front of it. Well, I've done this on a big telescope. It's really kind of cool. You see a gigantic picture of yourself, and you can see the stars, but your head's in the way. So when you build the primary mirrors, what you do is you then introduce a series of secondary mirrors to direct the light out of your tube and out of the way to your eye or your head or your instruments or whatever it is you're using to look through the telescope. So that again, the collecting area of this telescope is set by the area of the primary mirror and therefore the collecting area scales like the diameter of the primary mirror much in the same way that in a refracting or a lens-based telescope... The light gathering power scales like the square of the diameter of the front lens, the primary or objective lens. Now there's various kinds of designs that people have used to get the light out the back. There's a lot of advantages for this. This particular type of design here is a very common design. It's called a Cassegrain design. It's meant built by a guy named Cassegrain, in which you put a curved secondary mirror in the way and you direct the light out through a hole in the mirror. Because this secondary mirror's got a finite size, it's casting a shadow against the primary, so you're not losing anything here. So you go ahead and just drill a hole right through your mirror. This has a lot of advantages. Mechanically, you can support this from the back, which means you can build these things to almost arbitrarily big sizes, depending on how clever of an engineer you are with building steel. Second, because this, the mirror contains most of the mass of the telescope, the center of balance of the system is close to the telescope. So this is about where you would mount it, this is about where you would hold it in balance so you can move it around the sky smoothly. If you're going to put a camera or a place for a person to sit or a spectrograph it'd be nice to be able to bolt it here to the back close to the center of mass, that way you don't have to have a gigantic counterweight out here to counterbalance it. There are designs that direct light out to the side but if you've got a huge mass out there you've got to have a huge counterbalance mass somewhere else. all of those problems are easily solved, well, straightforwardly soluble in an engineering sense. And so this is now the wa- the primary design for modern research telescopes. The very first of this Cassegrain design for a research telescope was not built until the late 19th, early 20th centuries. In fact, I used one of those, the 36 inch Crossley reflector at uh, Lick Observatory. didn't have a secondary mirror. It had a small mirror that directed it out to the side. It was a Newtonian. but All the giant telescopes, the Hubble Space Telescope, the big telescopes we're going to see, are fundamentally of this two-mirror design. You have a large primary mirror that provides the collecting area and a smaller secondary mirror that redirects the light out the back of the telescope and brings it to a focus behind the primary mirror. Now you do lose a little collecting area with the primary mirror and its support, but you simply, that's the price you pay. Okay. So here's some examples of evolution of a design. On the left is Isaac Newton's original reflecting telescope that he presented to the uh, Royal Society in the year 1672. It consisted of a simple speculum mirror, basically a polished piece of metal, and then up at the front there was a little flat mirror that directed the light out the side to a small objective eyepiece, and the opening of the telescope was here. You focused it by moving this small tube in and out of a big tube, and of course, in the proper style of 17th century England, it had a very stylish wooden and brass mount. This is now a modern version of a Cassegrain type telescope. It's got a curved secondary mirror up here, an 8.1 meter diameter primary. This is one of the this is the Northern telescope of the pair of U.S. T- and British telescopes called the Gemini project. It's an 8 meter telescope on top of Mauna Kea. Secondary mirror directs light out through this hole in the middle to an instrument bay, which is down underneath the main telescope here. And the main support structure you can see right here is near the center of mass, which is near this gigantic mirror. And then instead of using an enclosing tube, you use an open, lightweight space frame design to keep your steel costs down. You don't need that tube enveloping this because you're working in complete darkness. You can build mirrors very large. This is the largest mirror ever does, ever built. We, there's more... Ups more than one of these. This is the 8.4 meter, or roughly 27-foot diameter mirror for the, for the large binocular telescope. It's one of two that were created for this. To give you an idea of its size, look around you into the circle of this room, since we have this round classroom. One of those mirrors would fit very neatly within this circle. This is a huge mirror. It's done, actually the mirror itself is only one inch thick of glass, but you can see through the glass this background honeycomb structure. The engineers who designed this have taken a a leaf from the bees and know that a honeycomb is an amazingly lightweight but extremely strong mechanical structure. So this in fact is poured in a gigantic mold that spins. As it spins, like putting water in a bucket and spinning it up, it forms a curved surface. So you spin it so the glass naturally forms an initially curved surface, which is what you want for a primary mirror, and then it flows into this mold structure and forms a glass honeycomb behind it. So the whole mirror weighs a few tons, but if you were to build this as a solid piece in the old fashion, it would be not only too big to support itself under its own weight, but it would take so much steel to hold it up, we simply could not afford to build the telescope around this but with this lightweight honeycomb material we can actually build two of these and put them on a single telescope and I'll show you what that looks like here in just a second. Now there's another scheme that can be used for getting the collecting area big this is the scheme that's now, this is the wave of the future. This is how much bigger telescopes have been made recently and will be made in the future, not by building a single-piece mirror, but by using a segment of lots of little tiny mirrors. If you look really carefully, you can see that, in fact, this gigantic mirror here, which is 10 meters in diameter, is composed of little hexagonal segments. Each of those, each of those hexagonal segments is about a meter and a half, actually I think it's 1.8 meters in diameter, You can get an idea of the size of the segment from the technician standing there in the central hexagonal hole. This is one of the two Keck telescopes that are 10 meters in diameter. We have now designs on the drawing board, but no money yet, for the next generation of large telescopes that are going to get up to 30 meters in diameter. All of those designs use segmented mirror technology. Thank you. For those of you who come in late and haven't had a chance, if, you've, if you haven't, please sign up on this sheet. It's a little attendance check for today. Now once you build one of these gigantic collecting buckets, you want to put it somewhere where the weather is really nice. You don't want to put it somewhere like here where it rains most of the year. In fact, we used to have a fairly large telescope, one of the largest reflecting telescopes in the United States early in the 20th century was a 69-inch telescope that used to be up in the Perkins Observatory up in Delaware, Ohio, just up Route 23 here. On record, they got anywhere from two to three perfectly clear nights per year. That kind of that sucks. So you don't want to put a telescope down here. What you want is a place, first of all, that has really dark skies. You don't want to be near large cities with lots of streetlights. You also want, well, clear, dry weather most of the year. Three nights a year, of clear, dry weather isn't going to cut it. You also want good seeing. This is a steady atmosphere above you. You don't want a lot of turbulence, a lot of wind patterns that are going to make it look like you're trying to look at the sky from the bottom of a swimming pool. So you want a high, dry, remote site far from any cities. And it turns out some of the best places to do that are going to be on dry mountain peaks. Mountain peaks tend to get you above local weather. A lot of mountainous areas are really inconvenient to put large cities. So you don't have lots of population living, especially near steep, rugged mountain ranges. And so a lot of the best astronomical sites on the Earth are in places like the Chilean Andes, up near the Atacama Desert. The Atacama Desert gets rainfall measured in millimeters per decade. So it's a wonderfully dry place. It's almost like being on the moon there. It's a really amazing place. the Chilean Andes are a high, dry mountain range with a nice coastal climate, so you get nice coastal air flows. That gives you very smooth airflow over the mountains to give you good seeing. Mauna Kea, the giant shield volcano on the Big Island of Hawaii, has an altitude of 14,000 feet above the Pacific Ocean. You get beautiful laminar flows from the ocean over this thing, it's high, it's, bone dry up on Mauna Kea. Nothing lives up there except a couple flies that get blown up by the wind every now and then, and a few crazy astronomers. It's a marvelous place to put an observatory. I've been up there, of course, it's kind of, it's rough to work there because it's really thin air, but it's an amazing place. And then Arizona in the southwestern United States has really become the nexus of of observatories. The Kitt Peak Observatory, where OSU has a pair of telescopes, Mount Hopkins, Mount Graham, are some of the major research observatories in the world. Also, the California Coastal Range. I did a lot of my work as an undergraduate at the Mount Wilson Observatory, and I visited Palomar Observatory, both of which were, at that time were run by Caltech and Carnegie. They're in the coastal ranges of Southern California. I did my graduate work at UC UC Santa Cruz, which uses the Lick Observatory. Lick Observatory is in the coastal range of Northern California, just south of of, uh, San Francisco. It didn't get very dark skies being over the San Francisco, San Jose metropolitan area, but every now and then when the fog rolled in, it would be an amazing place. So you don't have to be really, it's, it's convenient to be close to a big city, but even places like the Andes, we're way far from everywhere. Out in the middle of West Texas, I also worked at the McDonald Observatory in West Texas. It was an amazing place because it was really dark, even if it wasn't very high or very dry. Now this should tell you pretty much where you want to put your observatory. This is a satellite image of the United States at night. You can spot your favorite major metropolitan areas of Ohio, there's Lake Erie there. Uh, You can see the web of roads, and you remember how they laid townships out in the Midwestern point, where everything was kind of on a grid. You can see that grid recapitulated where the towns are. And then all of a sudden you get out into the west. Somewhere around Kansas people stop wanting to deal with it and suddenly the place empties out. This is often what was referred to as the Great Desert until, of course, you get to the Golden Coast of California. There's San Francisco, the Los Angeles, um, San Diego metropolitan sprawl. Um, let's see, have I got the... There's Vegas, no. Yeah, there's Vegas and uh, yeah, some like... No, that's Tucson, that's Vegas, yeah, whatever. I can't do geography at nine either. But you can see there are these wonderful, dark, empty spaces. West Texas out here is, you know, there's most of Texas, but then there's West Texas. It's remarkably dark. McDonald Observatory, the University of Texas is out there. I was a McDonald fellow when I got out of grad school for a year. I used to go out observing in in West Texas. It was so dark in a really dark night, you couldn't see your hand in front of your face. But the way I knew it was really dark is one night Venus was up and it was really bright and I put my hand up and I could see a shadow cast by Venus in the dome if I move my hand back and forth. That's dark. You could count the number of street, you know, the number of lamps on the horizon. You can count and still have fingers left. So this is what you want to do. You want to go somewhere far from the cities and you want to get up high and up dry. This is the summit of Mauna Kea. It's kind of an astronomical metropolis now. A lot of the world's telescopes are up here. Some of the world's largest telescopes, currently the two Keck 10-meter telescopes, an eight-meter Subaru telescope run by the Japanese National Observatory. This is the eight-meter Gemini telescope built by the United States and the UK. That's a four-meter telescope, Canada, France, Hawaii telescope. And then you get a couple of smaller telescopes, some millimeter wave radio telescopes. And there's nothing up here. It's just it's just bone dry. It's really awful. And You know what the worst part of observing at Mauna Kea is? is you get onto an airplane down in Honolulu and all the people around you, you know, they're all the tourists, they got their shorts, they got their their Hawaiian shirts on, they're tanned, they're getting ready to go out on the beach, and you're standing there with a down parka over your arm. And everyone's looking at you like, dude, what are you doing with a parka in Hawaii? And the stewardesses and the the flight attendants all know where you're going, and they just, would you like another blanket, sir? You know, they're just really giving you a hard time. They know you're going up to the observatory because you're going to freeze your butt off up here if you don't have that down parka. It's below freezing most of the year, even though the best part of after your observing run is done, you get one day down at at sea level to reoxygenate because the air is really thin up here and you really feel kind of sick and "Ah," most of the time. Sleep down to 9,000 feet. You get down to sea level, you have to oxygenate for a day, and then you can go hang out on the beach. That's great. I like that part. I haven't done that in years. The largest telescopes in the world, now no reason to memorize this list. This is just illustrative. These are currently the largest telescopes in the world, by which I mean 8 meters in diameter and above. The current winners are a pair of telescopes, Keck 1 and Keck 2. They use a 10-meter segmented mirror. They're run by Caltech, the University of California, and NASA. The 8.2 meter Subaru telescope is run by Japan, that's the largest Japanese national facility outside the home islands, it's a wonderful telescope. Uh, the 8.1 meter De- uh, Gemini telescopes is a huge consortium of the United States, Great Britain, Canada, South America, and Australia. They're called the Geminis because there's a twin telescopes. one located in the northern hemisphere, one located in the southern hemisphere, so but be- together between them they can look at the entire sky. The northern one is on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, and the other one is on Cerro Pachon, which is in the Chilean Precordillera It's just down the road from Cerro Tololo. The eight-meter, very large telescope. The Europeans decided to go in really big time into telescopes. They built not one but four identical eight-meter telescopes, put them on top of a mountain called Cerro Paranal up in the Chilean Atacama Desert. They basically went up there with bulldozers and dynamite and took the top fifteen meters of a mountain, fifteen fifty meters of a mountain, off, flattened it out, and built a facility up there. And then finally, Ohio State is a partner, currently a one-sixth partner in the what will be, when it's completed, in fact, what is, I'm sorry, I should say, repeat, what is currently the world's largest telescope on a single mount, because we just finished the second mirror, is the twin 8.4 meter diameter mirror large binocular telescope. It's a partnership of Arizona, Italy, Germany, The Ohio State University, and the Research Corporation of Tucson, Arizona. We just finished the second mirror within the last few months and got it aluminized this summer. And so it is now currently the world's largest telescope with an effective, co- largest optical telescope with an effective collecting area of 11.8 meters diameter. So take that Keck. Here's the Keck telescopes. It's a pair of telescopes. They don't actually work together yet, Although there is a, they are starting to work together in an interferometry mode, each of these can be independently pointed and independently steered. These are really cool. I got a chance to go tour these a few years ago, and they're really, really big. But they're not as big as, as, as Ohio State's, not now. I thought they were really big until I saw the LBT, and I went, wow, that's a really big telescope. Okay. Now, optical wavelengths are not the only place where a telescope can work. You can also work at radio wavelengths. Radio telescopes work in the other opening in the Earth's atmosphere. The Earth is pretty much opaque to X-rays and gamma rays and ultraviolet. It's opaque to most of the infrared, for reasons that are going to be important to us next week. But there's a gigantic hole in the radio. People after the Second World War, when radar technology was, was pretty well developed, began to notice that there were celestial sources of radio wavelengths, and so began to do radio astronomy turns out that there are emission lines, little transitions of electrons inside the lowest state of hydrogen produce a very, very bright emission line at a wavelength of 21 centimeters. That's a wavelength about like that. Also molecules, for example, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, methane, things like methane, ammonia, produce radio or microwave wavelength uh, lines that are wavelengths of a few centimeters to a few millimeters. And you can pick these up using radio receivers. There's also radio continuum. There is a radio equivalent of blackbody in very cold gas. Turns out to be most of the cold gas that fills the cold radiation that fills the universe has a temperature of about 3 degrees Kelvin, which is out in microwaves. And fast-moving electrons in magnetic fields produce a conti- form a continuous non-thermal radiation that you can see as well. So whenever you accelerate an electron in a strong magnetic field, you actually produce radio waves and microwaves. So you can see those with a radio telescope. Now there's a real nifty trick. You can build a gigantic radio dish and it looks kind of like a big satellite receiver, but you can play this trick where you connect them together with radio feeds and you put them into a computer called a correlator and you can actually make them synthesize the equivalent of a gigantic dish without being a filled aperture. It's called radio interferometry. Now, describing that trick is a little beyond the scope of this class. and It's kind of hard to describe anyway. But you can play this game called aperture synthesis, where just with a handful of sparse-array telescopes, you can synthesize one gigantic telescope. And you can get ridiculous angular resolution. Normally, the human eye can see an arc minute. A typical optical telescope from the ground without additional optic games can see about an arc second, maybe a half an arc second. A typical radio telescope ganged together with an interferometer that's almost the diameter of the Earth can see a micro arc second. Really quite remarkable. Here's a a big classic radio telescope. This is the biggest radio telescope in the world. This is the 1,000-foot or 304-meter Arecibo radio dish. It's actually built into a bowl-shaped valley in in the ground in, in Puerto Rico. Um, it doesn't steer, but what they do instead of steering it is they have this tower up here, which has a moving focus, which can watch objects spool overhead. Those of you who ever saw the movie Contact, this is, this is in the movie Contact there. It's actually a metal grid. Underneath is a bunch of plants and stuff, so it's actually it's pretty cool. I've never been out there to see it yet, but one of our programmers used to work for these guys. Uh, this is the biggest telescope in the world. It's also used for ionospheric research. It's mostly run by the National Observatories and Cornell University. Um, This is this trick of ganging together telescopes. This is the other photogenic telescope. Uh, This is the very large array out in Socorro, New Mexico, out on the Magdalena Plains here. The telescopes are individual dishes. They're each 25 meters in diameter, but they're mounted on railway cars that can move on this movable track to reconfigure the array to a really big array for super high resolution or a close-packed array, like is shown here, for very high sensitivity but somewhat lower resolution. This is operated by the U.S. National Radio Astronomy Observatory, or NRAO. It's a a consortium of universities plus the federal government, because radio astronomy kind of got too big, as you can see from the facility here, for individual universities to really get into this game. I don't do radio astronomy as much per se. I've done a little bit. I'm currently serving on the time allocation committee for this, for this observatory where we read proposals. In fact, those of you who saw me reading stuff during the last quiz, I was going through this this, week's, this month's stack of proposals to use this facility. You apply to use the facility, but it's operated by the U.S. national government. Now, Ohio State actually had a radio telescope for a long time. It was built by a, a radio pioneer by the name of John Krauss, a Buckeye who was a professor over in engineering, John Krause was probably one of the most brilliant antenna designers of the 20th century. He invented the helical antenna, which is one of the critical technologies of communication satellites, among other things. Um, also the corner reflector array. And he built this large fixed array um, telescope, which used to be up, up near the telescope up in Delaware. It was up, up on Route 23, just before you get to Delaware, Ohio. It was called the Big Ear. Back in the 1960s and 1970s, this undertook a survey of the entire northern hemisphere sky and identified a lot of radio sources. In later years, it got turned to the search for extraterrestrial intelligence and then kind of faded away. And the reason it faded away is it really became more of an engineering project as radio astronomy moved in new directions as the new generation of astronomers came up. The first generation of radio astronomy was really um, engineers because it was really an engineering problem. But as the second generation was educated, were mostly astronomers, they realized that they were going to need larger interferometric facilities, needed to basically pool together university resources, and it really left behind university telescopes like this. Um, I got to see this just before it was demolished in 1998. There's two lessons in here. One is, if you're going to keep up scientifically, you've got to stay forward with the field, not just simply keep using the same old technologies. But also, if you're going to build a large facility, own. Don't lease the land. It was actually leased from Ohio Wesleyan. And for those of you who know the area around Delaware, where there's been a massive um, upswing in real estate, um, the land became far more valuable than the leases. And income to bulldozers. So tragic, but it really wasn't doing much astronomy since the 1970s. But it was Ohio State's radio telescope for a long time. Now, we can do stuff from the ground, but, you know... Only radio, visible light, and a little bit of the infrared, certain little narrow windows of the infrared that can sneak past all the water vapor and carbon dioxide absorption in the atmosphere, ever make it to the ground. Most of the electromagnetic spectrum is absolutely invisible to the ground. So the way to get around that is you need to go up into space. You need to get above the Earth's atmosphere. You need to do this to go into the mid or far infrared Either you need to go into space or as is recently being done, you basically buy a 747, carve a hole in it, and fly it up to 45,000 feet. That's just about to fly here soon. You need it for the ultraviolet and you need it for X-rays and gamma rays. So you need to get above the Earth's atmosphere to see the rest of the electromagnetic spectrum where there's an awful lot of activity. You also wanna get above the weather. Let's face it, it'd really suck if you had an x-ray telescope or something on the ground, it rained all the time. But if you get it above the atmosphere, there is no weather. Well, there is weather in space. There are solar flares and stuff. You have to kind of worry a little bit about that. But other than that, there really isn't much. It's always clear in space for an optical telescope. So space telescopes is a wonderful platform for getting telescopes up to where you can actually do something. Don't sound like there's any downside. It's always clear, there's no weather, there's no atmosphere. What's the downside? The answer is it costs a bunch to do this. The Hubble Space Telescope is $5 billion and counting. The Large Binocular Telescope is $120 million and counting. it's just really, really, really fearsomely expensive to loft a telescope into space. You also are limited by the mass of what you can loft into space. There was a plan to try to put like an 8-meter diameter folded mirror telescope called the, the James Webb next-generation space telescope. That's now been downscoped to four meters or six meters. They're still arguing about it because it's really hard to put something big in space. It was gonna cost way too much money. So that's the downside here. You can do a lot but it's expensive. It takes you many years of development. It's really hard to do. Here, of course, is probably the most famous space telescope. Uh, This is the Hubble Space Telescope. It's one of my favorite telescopes. I've done a lot of my research with the Hubble Space Telescope. It floats above the Earth's atmosphere. It's solar-powered. It's always clear. It's an amazing machine. It's only a a two-and-a-half-meter telescope, but it's, it's literally revolutionized our view of the universe in many different areas. Spitzer Infrared Telescope, shown here in partial darkness with its, with its butt end pointed down towards the Earth, it's actually thrown into an orbit which is floating behind the Earth and slowly trailing behind in the cold of space because infrared is heat radiation. You want the spacecraft to be very, very cold. It's in about its last two or three years of its mission as it's slowly running out of cryogen, which keeps it cold, but it actually may have an extended mission just passively cooling. I haven't used the Spitzer myself, but a number of my colleagues here at Ohio State have been heavy users heavy of the Spitzer telescope. It, too, is an absolutely amazing machine. And then, of course, another observatory I've had the privilege to use, the Chandra X-ray Observatory. X-ray telescopes do not look like optical telescopes. They're really a different design because you're dealing with very high-energy photons. But it's an X-ray imager and spectrometer. In fact, uh, my student and I just got a paper published the other day on some data we took with the spectrometer mode of Chandra. It, again, flies high above the atmosphere, back where X-rays and stuff can penetrate. So, it's a lot of really remarkable resources are now. We're really in this golden age of space astronomy where we've had some of these marvelous, great space observatories to use. Well, a modern telescope, you don't look through it with your eyes, as you might have kind of guessed. We don't normally look through it. We want to analyze the light, we want to collect the light and store it. So we use digital cameras. A lot of those are CCD-based, same as in your digital cameras and stuff that you can buy. Those of you who have little cameras in your phone, they're actually a variation on a theme of the same sensors we use in large in astronomy. There are now infrared cameras. A lot of those are infrared heat sensors, which were developed originally for military applications, are now being used in astronomy. And, of course, we want to then take that light, not only take pictures, but pass it through gratings and prisms and break it up into its component colors and build spectrographs. You may not know this, but Ohio State is actually one of the world's leading groups for the construction and design of advanced telescopic instruments. We've put cameras and spectrographs now on 10 different telescopes around the world, and we're currently in the process of building large optical spectrographs for the large binocular telescope. So I'm one of the one of the two instrument scientists, along with Darren DePoy and recently a new faculty member, Paul Martini. The three of us together form the core of our instrument group. We've been a very busy group of people. Uh, these are Ohio State's telescopes. This is the MDM Observatory, a 2.4 meter sorry 2.4 meter and a 1.3 meter telescope on this high ridge just uh, outside of Tucson, Arizona. On this far ridge here, you can see the Kitt Peak National Observatory. We have a quarter of the share in these telescopes that we share with Dartmouth, Michigan, Ohio University, and Columbia. Um, Not equal shares. Columbia, Dartmouth, and OSU have a quarter, and then Michigan and Ohio University split up the remainder. Um, And then we have two telescopes, a 2.4 meter diameter telescope, so the same diameter as the Hubble, but on the ground, and a 1.3 meter telescope, and they're equipped with various spectrographs and direct imaging cameras. So our students, including some undergraduate students who've done research with us as seniors, as well as research, faculty and others, um, get basically about 90 nights per year on each of these two telescopes. And we do this a lot, we do a lot of stuff on these. Yes? Yes, ma'am? No, actually go out there. In fact, if you're wondering where Katie is, Katie's here. She's at the 2.4-meter telescope for the last week on a run. We mostly go out there and observe in person, although actually one of the projects I'm working on right now is setting up Internet video conferencing links to these domes so we can have a partially remote observing so a person can stay here but then remotely consult with video links. So, yeah, we're working on kind of remote stuff. I've done remote stuff. In fact, I've done remote stuff here. This is the other place where Ohio State has telescopes. This is the Cerro Tololo Inter-American Observatory. It's about 300 kilometers north of Santiago de Chile in the, in the Ch- Andean Precordiera. We operate a 1.3 meter, one meter, one and a half, and 0.9 meter telescopes. In a consortium called SMARTS, which was founded by the Yale University, and we're just one of the members, we built a large camera, an optical infrared camera that's on the 1.3 meter, and I put together a one, uh, direct imaging camera for the 1-meter telescope. A couple summers, a couple winters ago I went down there to commission. We got a lot of time down here on this. I've done a lot of remote observing technology test bed on this because this is 8,000 kilometers away and it's a 12-hour nasty plane flight just to get to Santiago, then another plane to get up to La Serena, in a truck, so it's not that fun. And finally, of course, there's the LBT. I've already covered this, I don't know why. This is what the large binocular telescope looked like in construction. Two 8.4-meter mirrors were assembled in a plant in Milan, trucked up a mountain in southern Arizona, and assembled into now the world's largest telescope. This is the LBT. It's now 11.8-meter effective collecting area. Oops. And, of course, the large spectrograph that we're building. I'll show you a picture here at the very end. Um, It's a big spectrograph. So sorry to go over time, and I'll see you all on Monday.